This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Jeff Begays, and this is America Change Forever. America changed forever on September 11, 2001, when terrorists attacked the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and hijacked a plane that eventually crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania after passengers fought back against the hijackers. It's hard to believe 20 years has passed since that day. Coming up, we'll take a look back on the moment President Bush learned of the attack. I interviewed some of the Secret Service agents who protected the president that day and then Vice President Dick Cheney. Also, an exclusive interview with the Deputy Director of the FBI, Paul Abate, on some current threats. Let's begin with a look back on 9-11 as it was unfolding. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Thumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We don't know if it was a private aircraft. We have no idea how many were on board or what is the, what the extent of the injuries are. The, um, the, uh, the timing of this is, is important. Um, it comes before 9 o'clock. Um, perhaps, perhaps, and, and, and we say that in hopeful fashion, perhaps not everybody was at work um, because uh, if, if that building... We're on the line with um, uh, another eyewitness. Um, um, tell me where you are, if you would. Well, right now I'm in the back in the hotel. Okay, so you were standing outside, and tell us what you saw and what you heard. Well, well what I, I heard first, an explosion, and I just figured that it was a plane passing by. Then all of a sudden, stuff just started falling, like bricks, paper, and everything. Then, after like everything stopped, because it like, was falling in the street and the cars were catching to each other, then when it kind of stopped, I heard a guy screaming. And when I looked over, there was this guy that was on fire, so I kind of like ran over, and I tried to like put the fire you know, out. Approximately 10 minutes ago, there was a major explosion from probably, uh, it looks like about the 80th floor, it looks like it's affected probably four to eight floors. Uh, major flames are coming out of the, let's see, the north side and also the east side. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one, another plane just hit. Another one just hit the building. Wow. Wow, another one just hit the building. Another plane has just hit another building, flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. That, yes, that was definitely looked like it was on purpose. It just, it just flew straight into it. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. Oh my goodness. We're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Come on. It would appear that there has been another major explosion, this one in the nation's capital. You are looking at a scene of uh, apparent blast aftermath. There is smoke in the air uh, the, the over sound, the Pentagon. I, I just, it was deafening, absolutely deafening. And uh, I mean, I just remembered this bright ball of fire that just went right over my head. We don't know whether this is the result of a bomb or whether it is yet another aircraft that has targeted a um, symbol of the United States power, but there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Um, this is coming at 9.43 Eastern Time. CBS News veteran correspondent Harold Dow is on the telephone now. I arrived on the scene about an hour and a half ago, and uh, believe it or not, there was another major explosion. The, build, the building itself, literally the top, the top of the floor has collapsed down. I saw it brought blow and then ran like hell. You could see things falling from the towers. We didn't know what that was. We now know that was it was people who were, who were jumping. Yeah. 
It's chaos out here, it really is. So the Twin Towers fall. It's amazing. It's crazy. I can't believe it's happening. I really can't. It's nightmares. I'm gonna get him right here. You have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. There's three guys they've hijacked a plane, and I've heard that there's planes that's been, been thrown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. President Bush's chief of staff at the time was Andy Card. He notified the president of the attack. A steady hand is critically important. On September 11, 2001, you should, I want to put things in context. When the president arrived at the Emma E. Booker School in Sarasota, Florida, uh, there had been a buzz in the air, and I remember two people raising it, Carl Rove and Dan Bartlett, both asked a question. Anybody hear about a plane crash in New York? And the president, when we arrived at the school, went to a secure phone and called Condoleezza Rice's national security advisor. I did not hear that conversation. But as we were getting ready for the president to go into a classroom with second graders, uh, I had already gone into the classroom and checked it out and saw the second graders lined up. They were all excited to be getting, going into this classroom. I saw the press pool starting to gather with Ari Fleischer. And I came into the holding room with the president. I'm standing at the door beside the principal of the school and a White House advisor, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip, came up to the president and said, sir, it appears a small twin engine prop plane crashed into one of the towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. The president, the principal and I all had the same reaction. Oh, what a horrible accident. The pilot must have had a heart attack or something. And then the principal opened the door of the classroom and she and the president walked into the classroom. The door shut and I'm left inside the holding room. And Captain Lauer, Navy captain, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip, the director of the White House Situation Room, came up to me and said, sir, it appears that was not a small twin engine prop plane. It was a commercial jetliner. My mind flashed to the fear that the passengers on the plane must have had. They had to know it wasn't gaining altitude. I don't know why that's where my mind went, but that's where it went. But that was only a nanosecond because Captain Lauer came up to me and said, oh, my God, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. My mind then flashed to three initials, UBL, Osama bin Laden. I knew who he was. I knew about the attacks on the World Trade Center in early 93, late 92. And I knew about the Al-Qaeda network. And that thought didn't last very long because I then said, I'm going to tell the president. And one of the toughest jobs chief of staff have is to, you know, does the president need to know? This was an easy test to pass. Yes, he needs to know. What do I tell him? I made a conscious decision to pass on two facts, make one editorial comment, and to do nothing to invite a conversation because I assumed that he was sitting under a boom microphone. Mm -hmm. I knew that he was sitting in front of second graders and a press pool, and I didn't want to have anything. Uh, I didn't want to have a dialogue with him about it. Uh, I also reflected on another time that your listeners may remember, I was the acting chief of staff when George H.W. Bush went to J Tokyo, Japan and threw up on the Japanese prime minister. And everybody thought the president was dying. And I was the acting chief of staff and I had to go with him in the ambulance, which he refused to get into, then get, move into his limousine. He threw up all over me. We moved to Akasaka Palace. <laughs> That's and ultimate then I service. I my little laminated card and said, I've got to make sure the world doesn't think he's dying. And so I did everything on my what do you do in case of plan? And I said, I'm going to do everything the same way I did on that day with regard to President Bush in this classroom. I'm going to be cool, calm and collected all day and try to be a steady force for the president. I opened the door to the classroom and long story short, I whispered into his ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. He did not turn around and talk to me, which I was pleased. I then stepped back from him. I could tell he was thinking and thinking and then i went back to the door looked at him again he was still his head was kind of bobbing up and down the students were so attentive to their books they had, were taking out their books to read with the president the press pool was all turned around talking to ari fleischer uh, and i saw the principal of the school and the secretary of education rod page mouthing what's up and I walked into the holding room, and the first thing I said was get the FBI director on the phone, get a line open to the vice president, get a line open to the White House Situation Room. 
get the crew back on Air Force One, Secret Service, get ready to turn the motorcade around. We're going to have to leave. Dan Bartlett, get some remarks written for the president. He's going to have to say something. We have 600 people in a gymnasium. He's going to say something, but we can't say anything we do not know to be the truth. So that was 9-11. I had an in-depth interview with former Secret Service agent Eddie Morenzel, who led President George W. Bush's detail on 9-11. He has a riveting account of what happened as the attack on America unfolded. You were with the president yes. at the school. Yes. But from what I read, uh, Andy Card knew that the first plane had gone to the White House, or excuse me, had gone into the tower before you actually arrived at the school. Is that correct? Did you know before you got to the school? No. The, no, we did not know. We, okay. we were at the school um, when, when we were uh, leaving the motorcade going into the school. Uh, Carl Rove mentioned something to the president and said, hey, a, a plane just hit one of the twin towers. And the president said, well, what are the details? And he said, I, I don't have any details. And the president said, well, find out and let me know. As we actually went into the, uh, we went into the what's called a holding room, which is right next to where the president will talk. We, um, <clears throat> when we went in there, in the the um, uh, Condi Rice had called uh, in the uh, in in the uh, the, the, the room, and uh, so she gave the president the same information. Uh, basically, you know, it. it uh, uh, a plane went into the uh, to one of the twin towers. And you, so you could overhear uh, Condi Rice, who I believe was the national security advisor at the time. Right. And you could hear Carl Rove uh, relay <laughs> that information. You were that close to the president that you could overhear that. Right. Well, not with Condi was by phone, and uh, uh, in the in the holding room, uh, the White House military sets up secure communications. So in the event that there's any problems anywhere in the world, the president can be connected in, in a minute. So she called in to, to, the, um, to there, and, um, uh, and, but she didn't have any information either. And uh, so we decided, well, hey, let's just continue on here. And, you know, the president was doing a, a reading thing to the kids. And uh, so we weren't in there all that long when Andy Card walked in. And um, even though the president was doing his thing, he leaned over to him and whispered in his ear and said, we're under attack. Uh, a second plane hit the, the other uh, trade center. All right. So pause right there. That's that iconic now image of Andy Card leaning over and the president with that, what seems to be a surprise look. Where were you in relation to the president? I was right. I was probably about uh, ten feet away from uh, from the, the the president. So, if uh, I'm the president looking at you, you were on the left side or the right side? I was on this side over here, on the uh, right side. And, right, and we so had so behind Andy Card when he walked over. Right, right. Okay. So they 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 walked. When I saw the look on the president's face, I knew that uh, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew that there was something that uh, was 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 bad. Um, so Andy went in, uh, talked, said to the president, you know, we're under attack. And uh, then he walked around like over in that area right there. And that's where I was. And he whispered in my ear and he said, we're under attack. Um, the uh, another plane just hit the other tower. And so immediately. All that thought. So do your eyes pop out of your head? No. I mean, how do you react to that? I know you're a trained, one of the best that the Secret Service has at the time. How do you react? Well, you react, uh, you basically go all the way back to your training. And uh, just, you know, we're taught and we train and train and train to react. If something happens, you don't, sit there and analyze it, you react immediately. So, so what was your reaction 
to that? How, my, did, how did my, you react? Right. Well, what I did was I went into the holding room with Andy Card, and uh, I told him that uh, we needed to move the president. We need to do it as quickly as we possibly can. He said, Eddie, I totally agree with you. Um, uh, he said, but, you know, we need to make some kind of a statement. The president needs to make some kind of statement to the American people. And uh, as soon as we can do that, uh, so as they were preparing, he was with some other people there uh, putting it together. Then the, the, the president, he had just stayed in, in the room just a, a few minutes. He got up and he came, he came in. And he said to us, you know, gentlemen, we're at war. And he said, get me the, he talked to the, uh, the military aide and said, you know, get me the vice president, get me uh, Condoleezza Rice and um, the head of the FBI. And um, we're gonna need to find out what happened and we need to, uh, to, to answer, answer this. So he took control. He, he did take control, absolutely. Hmm. Um, how would you, you told me what he said, how would you describe his demeanor? Uh, his, well, his demeanor was, was really amazing. Um, amazing, you know, amazing in that it was, he was so calm, so cool and collected. And, uh, you could, you, you could tell by the, you know, the look on his face that, uh, that, you know, he was deeply troubled, deeply concerned, but he didn't let that stop him from being the professional that, 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 that he is. Now, you know, a lot of people look at that image of the president at the time in that classroom, classroom 301 with those kids. And there are some people who say, you know, he looked surprised. Mm -hmm. Did you see that too? No, I, I, um, I saw concern is what, is what I saw. And, uh, and, and again, uh, you know, when this stuff was all going on, our major goal, Secret Service, was to you know, get the president, get him out of there. So we immediately launched our surveillance helicopter that we always utilize for motorcades. Uh, Who we, makes that call? Uh, well, we, we have a, a, a um, transportation agent, and he's in charge of the motorcade and everything to do with that, which includes the, uh, the helicopter. So. He contacted them and had them launch immediately, you know, to, to, to get up. And um, then we had asked the, uh, the, the police who are invaluable in all these operations that we do, we had asked them to, they had any additional vehicles to help out with the motorcade. You needed help. So. You needed help just in case. Right, ab absolutely. And. I mean, we're, we're doing, you know, we're doing our thing. I mean, we, we wanted to evacu evacuate the president and get him someplace where we can control. So we, we knew right away that we didn't want Air Force One sitting on a tarmac as a target. So we, we the, the president made a couple quick phone calls and, uh, and then he did make a statement to the American public. And then from there, we, we took, we had already had everybody loaded up in the, uh, in the motorcade. And we put everybody, put the president, Carl Rove, got in with them in the back. And uh, we went at a very high rate of speed. Uh, not normally what we do with the, those limos, but. Uh, How fast do you think you were going? Um, um, I, I, I don't know. Um, Over a hundred easily? No. Oh, no, okay. No, no, they're, they're, uh, but anyway, I don't want to get into too many of those, those details. Um, but it was a very high rate of speed. Very high rate of speed. Right. Right. Exactly. Mm. And, um, and then to, then on the plane and then off to, where'd you go? Okay. Well, there are some intervening factors in there, if, if you want, just briefly. Oh, yeah. Um, as we were going in the motorcade, uh, we were notified that the, uh, the Pentagon had just been bombed. So that ratcheted things up even more. And the president was saying, I need to get back to Washington. 
I need to get back to the Oval Office. We're at war, and uh, I'm the commander in chief. Were you you were in the front seat? The right front seat. What was the vehicle called at that time? Still the Beast, or? Well, yeah, our nickname for armored limos was the Beast. The Beast. Right. Okay, so you were in the front seat. <clears throat> right. Exactly, and I got a. Uh, I got a, a, on the radio, I got a call from the, uh, the pilot uh, of Air Force One, and he was saying, Eddie, wh- where are we headed? And I told him, I said, I don't know right now where we're headed. Uh, just get the plane completely ready to go. And as soon as we get there, we have to take off as, as fast as we can. And, uh, and he said, okay, I, I agree. So, so that's, that's what we did. We, we uh, got to the airport, we got everybody on the plane as quickly as we can. Uh, we did a very steep takeoff. I mean, most of the time it's a gradual takeoff. On, on this one, we, uh, uh, the pilots shot a more vertical angle. Why was that? We just, we wanted to get the plane, you know, out of any other kind of danger. So we Like a surface-to-air missile. That, that could have been a possibility, right? So we went, we, we went up, and our idea was to, you know, hide in the sky until we could figure out what was, what was going on. Hide in the sky. Right. How long did you hide in the sky? Well, we, actu- we actually did that. Um, we spent... Once everybody got back on the plane, we were trying, we were, you know, communicating with some different folks and trying to figure out what we were going to do, where we were going to go. The president kept on saying that I'm going back to the White House. Let's get this plane headed east. Do you say no to a president? Yes. You do? Yes. But... It wasn't, it didn't actually go down that way. You know, he was kind of speaking to the group. And uh, so, so we were, we were talking, uh, you know, about different, different uh, avenues that we, we could, you know, approach. And there were actually some folks that, uh, this was like right outside the president's office. And there were actually some folks that um, really shouldn't have, you know, they, they didn't need to be there. Because so, there was a political discussion about optics. How would it look if he didn't go back to Washington? There, well, right. So what Andy Card grabbed me and the military aide and said, let's go into the president's bedroom and close the door and we need to make a decision what we're going to do. But it'll be the three of us. And, uh, well, we're going to make a decision that we're going to take to the president, I'll put it that way. So we went in, uh, I, I went to Andy again and said, hey, you know, we, we just, we, we cannot go back east. We have to go west. And I had already been able to talk to uh, the special agent in charge of the president's detail who was not on the trip and our director, uh, Brian Stafford. So Brian and, and Carl Truscott, and I had, and they both said to me, Eddie, don't bring them back. It's too unsettled. You know, we just had a Pentagon bomb. We don't know what else is out there. Um, whatever you do, don't bring them back uh, east. This is an incredible story, I got to say. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm sitting in a movie theater mm-hmm. as you describe this situation. And so you said, <laughs> we can't go east. We need to go west as far away from Washington as possible at this point. Well, not really as far away as possible because we had we wanted to make some other stops so the president could communicate again to the to the American public. So, uh, like I said, we were in that uh, we were in the president's bedroom, and uh, uh, the mill aide. Part of his job is to always know if there's an emergency. You know where are we supposed to to go? You know. And um, so he said, hey, Barksdale Air Force Base is close by. It's in Louisiana. We can be there. And uh, so, uh, you know, and they have good communications uh, equipment there. And uh, uh, so, and they, they have fighters 
stationed there. So they can come and, you know, ride our wings and, and give us safety. And so I said, hey, that, 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 that sounds good. That, that sounds real good to me. Uh, Andy said, okay. And as we stood up, um, Secretary Card said to me, um, uh, we're going to go in and brief the president now, but you have to tell him that he's not going back to Washington, D.C. So I said, uh, yes, sir. Why did he want you to brief that? Uh, well, he had already had spoken to the president about it, you know, a little bit before. And so we went into the president's office, and Carl Rove was in there, one or two others, and I, uh, I said to the president, that, you know, sir, we, we feel that it's unsafe back in D.C. and we can't take you into an unsettled area. Um, so we have come up with a plan that we could go to Barksdale Air Force Base, regroup and find out what's going on. Well, initially the president said, no, uh, we're not going to do that. I'm the commander in chief and uh, I need to be back in Washington to run this war from the, from the White House. So it was kind of, uh, you know, just, and then he would say something, then I would say something. And um, Andy Card was a real big help saying to the president, you know, I, I think you ought to, you know, listen to what Eddie's saying. Uh, you know, the, the Secret Service is, they're, they're here to protect you and, you know, let them, let them do their job. But you know, one thing I would add, though, is on game day, when everything was happening, you really don't have time to sit down and consider and things like that. So, I mean, you just do what you have to do, and you do it quickly and get it done, uh, you know, with, with the, the, the main goal always, the safety and security of the President of the United States. At that, at that point, nothing else matters. And, but you're, you're so busy and you're, you're going, trying to, to, you're trying to look like one or two steps ahead, you really don't have time to sit down and you know, think about what actually is going on. Um, later, later on, you know, after you know, months after this happened and even years, yeah, sometimes we do sit down and, and talk, and, um, uh, but try to remember, uh, the, the other thing for me, though, is, you know, that let us never forget. I, I will never forget, as long as I live, you know, what, what happened. And um, I'm sure the, the rest of my colleagues uh, feel the same way. Tony Zotto was at the White House. He was ordered by his supervisor to rush Vice President Dick Cheney down into the White House bunker where a military aide told him that yet another hijacked plane was incoming. I was driving into the complex when I heard about the first plane hitting, just listening to the radio, and they broke in, and they stayed on it for you know longer than a normal station would. So I called our command post and I said uh, I wanted to get a visual on what was going on because I, I, I know they had TVs on there. So I asked the agent at the command post, I said, uh, what's it look like? And he said, it looks like a big hole and it's a nice day like it is here. You know, it's not a small plane, that's for sure. You know, so I, I said, okay, you know, something just clicked. I had him, I had him uh, reach out to the shift leader who was working that day and I said, tell the shift leader to give me a call ASAP. Scooter Johnson was the shift leader. He called me and I said, Scooter, not for nothing, but just... Just make sure everyone knows how to get to the shelter, you know, the, refresh their memories. And he's, he reminded me that the week before, their shift had been in training and they spent a day, a half a day at the, comp, at the White House going through every door, opening every lock, going through the, all the stairs to get down on the evacuation procedures. I said, okay, good. I said, I'll be in in a couple of minutes. I got in right after the second plane hit, because I was still stuck in traffic. Nothing, nothing really happened until the second plane hit. I walked over, I parked on the complex, I walked over to the VP's office instead of going into my office, and I had just gotten off the phone with the command center, and they said that we had an open line with the National Airport Tower, and we also had our own monitoring system for airspace control. And they said both systems were showing that there was nothing abnormal in the D.C. airspace at that point. So I said, okay. So I walked over to the VP's office, 
I wanted to tell him, I walked into his office to tell him that we might evacuate him later, but right now it was, it was quiet in this area. I walked into his office. He was seated at his desk, but he was turned sideways with the TV on watching the events. I mean, he also had the phone in his ear. So I stood there. He didn't know I came in. I stood there for less than a minute. I didn't want to, you know, I figured, hey, he's probably talking to the president or the Pentagon. I said, all right, let me go back to my office, which was across West Exec in the old EOB. I walked out of his office and I talked to the agents on post and I said, it was Jimmy Scott. I said, Jimmy, just be ready to, if you get a radio call, just be ready to go in and get him. I said, I'll be right back to talk to him. I went over to my office. We had all the supervisors in there because we had a 10 o'clock supervisors meeting scheduled. You know, it was supposed to be a quiet day. Um, and all the supervisors were busy. I know the, the family section supervisor was busy dispatching agents to pick up all the kids, like Nick was talking about with the first family, all the VP's uh, daughters and the, and the grandkids at school or whatever, and take them to a secure location. So he was getting agents out to do that. Mary Cheney happened to be in the Carib Caribbean Islands on a vacation. So at that time, we were under Treasury. Customs was our sister agency. He was working on with Customs to try to get a Customs plane out of either Miami or San Juan to bring her back to, to DC to DC. And eventually that happened. But so I got stuck talking to some of the supervisors over there about what they were doing. I put my radio on, put my earpiece in, turned the radio on, and Rick Wright, who was the morning supervisor, he was the one who rode down in the motorcade with the vice president from the Naval Observatory residence. He was already walking over to the West Wing and I said, I'll be over. Um I just put my earpiece in, I was putting my jacket on, and I heard over the radio, the radio call came in saying, inbound plane to the White House. And it, it was repeated at least once, maybe twice. Before I could grab my mic and say anything, Rick got on and said, get him down, get him down. I didn't have to say anything, I just ran. I ran down the stairs into the West Wing and up the stairs to the, where the VP's office was. I ran into his office. I knew he would be gone, but I had to make sure that, you know, that a transmission wasn't garbled or something. No agents on the door. I walked into his, ran into his office, no one there. I said, okay, good. Walked down the hallway, and a uniform division officer was coming down the hallway, yelling into all the staff people to evacuate the White House as I was going by him. I made my way downstairs to the, uh, the initial part of the shelter right below, and, uh, he was down at the bottom of the stairs. There was a TV on already. We had the gun box open. The agents were on either end of the corridor. We had radios and, and telephones down there. He was watching the TV. Now, at that point, I knew that, you know, he had had heart issues before. So I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, the stress of pulling him out of the office and dragging him down the stairs didn't have a negative effect on his heart. So I stopped at the bottom of the stairs and I talked to him for a minute. I looked at him and I said, are you okay? How do you feel? And he, was, he said, I'm fine, I'm, I'm okay. And he looked fine. He didn't look flushed or anything. He looked cool. He looked calm. I said, okay, I don't know how long we're going to be here, but, you know, get comfortable. You, you know? really have to think of everything in those situations for you to stop and think, okay, how's his heart? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was, you know, we had taken him to the hospital earlier in the year at a last minute because it was, I think he had like heart palpitations or a beat, uh, fast beating heart, and they... I know they put in a pacemaker later on, you know, about a month later. But this was September. So, yeah, and one of our th thoughts was, geez, if, I was thinking, boy, if, he, if his heart's given out, we're going to have to get him out of here and get him to the hospital, you know, quickly. But we were down below. So we were there not too long. You know, he got on the phone. I think he was talking to the president. Um, Mrs. Cheney came in. Condoleezza Rice came in. And eventually, within a few minutes, we moved down to the Presidential Operations uh, Center, Emergency Operations Center. We walked down there. We walked in, and we weren't in there more than a couple of minutes. He hadn't even sat down yet. And a military officer came in from the command center next to the PIOC, and he said, uh, Mr. Vice President, we have a plane coming down through Pennsylvania, down the Potomac direction. It's a hijacked plane. We need your authorization to take it down. And he said, is it a confirmed hijack? And the, and the officer said, yes, sir, it is. The FBI has confirmed it with uh, phone calls to and from the plane, something along, uh, you know, to that nature. And he just said, okay, take it down. The vice president said, 
uh, calmly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he did everything calmly. <laughs> yeah, he did. So he said, what did he say? He said, take it down. Just like that. Yeah. In the wake of 9-11, the Muslim American community faced a harsh and really unfair backlash. I spoke with Nihad Awad, who is the executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Do you remember where you were on 9-11? Yes, I do. I, I do remember. I was, I was at my house. Uh, uh, actually, I was, uh, at, I was at my apartment getting ready to work. I was ironing my shirt, uh, to be specific, and I had the radio on. And I was hearing uh, the live coverage of the first news that an airplane uh, slammed into one of the twin towers. And, you know, that was like a strange uh, event. Then moments later, uh, the announcer came up with another piece of news that was probably shocking. Uh more shocking than the first one, because that uh, confirmed that it is a deliberate attack when the second plane uh, slammed into the second twin tower. Uh, and I, I just it was shaken to my core, and I did not know what to think, except I was thinking about my children who were um, at school and my wife was going there to pick him up and you know I just hurried up put my clothes on and just you know um, got in the car and just headed immediately to Washington DC and in driving from my apartment to Washington DC I drive on 395 north which you know um, in few minutes on the drive you see the Pentagon on your left-hand side, and just one mile before I, I, I got on, on the highway, I saw a huge uh, cloud, a black cloud coming from the side of the Pentagon, and I knew that we are under attack. And I was trying to get to Washington, D.C. to help um, the public, my organization, my community, to figure out what's going on, and I knew that it is a, a you know from 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 the whole marks, I knew that it was an attack on the nation, and I started to hear from the radio, uh, in my car that it is a terrorist attack, and unfortunately, I just had a gut feeling that Muslims will be blamed uh, for 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 this, and uh, my organization is always ready to um, try to understand what's going on and try to explain things to our community and to the public and the media. That's the nature of our organization. But why did you why did you have a gut feeling that your community would be blamed for this? Because immediately we started to hear about terrorism, and I know that uh, this is uh, this is the reason one of the many reasons i I wanted to start this organization to disassociate ourselves and our community and our faith from violence that has been unfortunately attached to us from the entertainment, from the bias, uh, from the lack of ability to differentiate between a faith community and the acts of the few. Um, and that, that really prompted me years and years ago to, to, to confront the negative portrayals of, of our community and our faith. Uh, so it is it is a job that that I wanted to do because I feel that people are open-minded, but they need to hear from us telling our own story and explain our uh, you know our faith and just you know provide provide the information. So as I was really driving from my home. To DC, uh, our office was uh, is still on Capitol Hill. Took me forever. Took me like two hours for 15 minutes, uh, 15 to 20 minutes drive, because uh, roads were blocked, and I was just frantically trying to go to the office, meet with my team, try to understand things, 
and 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 follow the news and be ready uh, to to process. Uh, the unimaginable. So you had that sinking feeling back then that your community would be blamed. And in some ways, in the the days and weeks, and really in some quarters of this country, um, months after the attack, the Muslim community did face discrimination, uh, did face hate, uh, what did you see during that period? I mean, it has been very, very traumatic um, experience. Um, incidentally, I, I should mention, you know, be- before before the incident happened, uh, like you know, before like eight thirty in the morning, uh, I was excited for the day Tuesday because we were supposed to meet with President Bush, the National Muslim Leadership was scheduled to meet with the president on that day in the in the late afternoon as far as i remember to talk about you know uh, common issues and since the majority of muslims at the time voted for uh, george w bush um, and he promised uh, to to work with the american muslim community in terms of inclusion and you know fighting bias uh, in the policies and the discrimination that muslims face at the airports so we were looking forward to having a conversation with the president on moving our common agenda forward. Uh, and and minutes, you know, after this, unfortunately, 9-11 happened and changed our lives forever. Um, and we have been, since then, the, the prime uh, collateral damage of, of this uh, heinous attack on our country and our communities. And, uh, and, and the Muslim community has been facing the brunt of this backlash and unfortunate and unfair association between, um, you know, a billion and a half people and the criminals uh, who, who attacked us on, on September 11th. So what you're telling me is 20 years later, you believe the Muslim community here in America is still facing the backlash of what happened on 9-11. I, I can tell you, Jeff, there is no day that passes ever since September 11, 2001, without me thinking about 9-11. And without me and many of our, my colleagues at the office thinking about, you know, the unfair association and the, the finger pointing against the American Muslim community and the, and the, the unfair price that we have been paying uh, as as employees in the fair, in in the workplace, or as students who are being bullied in 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 their schools, or even um, being um, at the receiving end of uh, anti-Muslim comments and policies from politicians, from mainstream and powerful politicians in our in our society. 9/11 has been with us, and we have been blamed for it ever since. And it did not, you know, it did not um, subside. I think it it changed. It took different forms. But meanwhile, you have an American Muslim community that has grown resilient. Uh, especially uh, young American Muslims who really wanted to defend their identity, and and they they rightly believe that they have nothing to do with 9/11, and they should not be paying the price for for that unfair association because the criminals who claimed to to be Muslims and you know defend Muslims um, that 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 should not you know. Um, should not be allowed to to really determine our lives and how we are being treated by ignorant people or by people who do not have the um, capacity or um, understanding that the acts of the few should not be blamed on the majority of people. It's like, you know, Pearl Harbor and how Japanese Americans have been um, blamed for it when 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 it happened by by another entity by other people who attacked our nation uh in 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 the 1940s you know they, these stories have been repeated uh, against minorities who find themselves in 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 the position of blame just because their countrymen or people who are uh, who belong to their faith community or their communities uh, 
do evil acts. We all get blamed for it. So, yeah, today probably things are, are different, but the acts of discrimination, the isolation, the, the level of anxiety, depression, and even post-traumatic uh, stress disorder is really prevalent within the American Muslim community. But have things gotten worse or are they progressively getting better in terms of the discrimination that you say Muslim Americans are facing in this country and have faced since 9-11? Well, you know, uh, I mean, as a nation, we have grown wiser and we're learning uh, from the past. Like, you know, we, we have a history of hundreds of years of oppressing minorities and, you know, one generation after another, we wisen up as a nation and, 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 and communities grow to defend themselves, to uh, really take their place in society and to find allies uh, among the rest of the society. Uh, so there is like a process of empowerment. I believe that the American Muslim community have grown much stronger uh, than uh, 2001 uh, on, on September uh, 11. Uh, today we see uh, American Muslims elected uh, officials. We see American Muslims celebrated in many places in our society. But that doesn't mean that discrimination went away. That doesn't mean that Islamophobia disappeared. In fact, this, uh, the Islamophobia is becoming stronger than ever because it has been streamlined and has been normalized and has been elevated and, and legislated by the likes of Donald Trump and those who believe in his false narrative about Islam and American Muslims. Uh, we have been the prime target of the previous administration and its allies, and we have been uh, at the receiving end uh, even today. And we're not alone in this. Uh, you know, legal uh, immigrants and uh, people who uh, look up to America to to host them and to allow them refuge, uh, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, uh, women, they they're all have been at the receiving end. And the fact that Amer uh, African-Americans are stronger today than 400 years ago doesn't mean that anti-black racism disappeared. Same thing can be said about the American Muslim community. They are much stronger today because they, they work hard and they defend themselves and they contribute to the society. They tell, they tell their own stories. But at the same time, doesn't mean that uh, being resilient, that Islamophobia disappeared. In fact, Islamophobia is becoming stronger than, than, than ever because during and around the time of September 11, 2001, ignorant people were just you know, blaming Muslims. But today, you have sophisticated people, you have organized campaigns, you have well-funded Islamophobia network in the United States that's trying to undermine silence and, 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 and sideline the American Muslim community. So while we are stronger, doesn't mean that Islamophobia and harassment and hate crimes disappeared from, from the scene. Why do you think there is this, as you put it, this well-funded... Um, apparatus in place to spread uh, Islamophobia. Why do you think that's the case? Well, you know, I I know that racism is unfortunate unfortunate reality. It's an it's like you know, as American as apple pie, and also Islamophobia is becoming as American as apple pie. So that's unfortunately the 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 destiny uh, or the nature of minorities living in the United States while, you know, they might, they might be like the, the first comers and, and they suffer the brunt of discrimination and fear. Um, but it takes them one generation after another uh, to, to strengthen themselves and to really take their space in society. So we, we live in a diverse, uh, multi-ethnic society, but it doesn't mean that we are a perfect society. We have the laws. We have the Constitution that grant us uh, liberty, freedom, equality, and justice for all, but these are not given to us on a silver platter. We have to fight for them. And uh, the good news is, um, you know, every hard work pays off. And we feel today that we are more secured in, in our society than 20 years ago. Uh, but we have to continue to be vigilant. 
you know, when, when you ask why so, why is it so, I mean, you know, we we have a lot of homework as as a country to to fight discrimination against all once and for all. Um, but these are phases of growth and and, and growing pain that unfortunately um, all minorities have to go through. And the Muslim community is not an exception, although the American Muslim community is hundreds of years old, you know, with the coming of, you know, the enslaved people who were brought here from, from uh, uh, you know, West Africa uh, throughout the 19th, uh, 20th century and today. There's an evolution of Islam and the American Muslim identity in the United States, uh, you know, but being a minority, always um, uh, equals uh, being misunderstood and mistreated. Uh, but the good news is uh, with, with hard work, with, open, with openness, with dialogue, with patience, um, you will always find uh, friends and open minds. And um, as I said, the good news is we live in a free society where all people are equal and should be treated equally but we just have to make sure that this is this is this is the reality we have to make sure that we work together to protect one another uh, against racism discrimination um, and and bully bullying Nihan Awad thank you thank you Edward Ahmad Mitchell is the deputy executive director of care where were you on 9-11? Uh, on 9-11, I was a freshman in high school. Uh, I was sitting in a drama class, and our teacher came in and said, a plane struck the World Trade Center, and no one took her seriously. No one seemed to be paying any attention except for me. Uh, and, and I uh, you know, pressed her to, to explain more and got her to turn on the TV, and, and our class watched as the horror unfolded. Mm, so... How did your life change from that point on? Well, what's interesting about my life is that at the time, I was not a Muslim. My father is a Muslim. My mother is a Christian. So growing up, I was exposed to both religions. And I considered myself kind of a, a non-denominational believer in God. And when 9-11 happened, it really forced me personally to, number one, speak up in defense of Muslims who were being uh, attacked and criticized and and smeared unjustly, I knew, because I knew Muslims in my personal life. And then secondly, to spend some time researching Islam myself out of curiosity. Um, and so for me personally, actually, 9-11 probably had a huge role in, in changing my religious trajectory uh, in life, number one. And then number two, uh, for me as a young person, uh, it really helped to form my career goals. Before 9-11, I was interested in pursuing a career as a writer. And afterwards, I developed a very strong interest in issues of government and politics, international affairs, and I ended up becoming a, a lawyer. And, and here I am as a civil rights attorney uh, with the largest Muslim civil rights organization in the country. So I would say it definitely had a huge impact on my life personally. When, when was the last time you felt as a Muslim American that you, you could feel discrimination, you, you felt like you were being discriminated against, or you felt like someone was aiming hate in your direction. Is there a moment that stands out for you? Well, in my line of work, uh, that's pretty often. So th that's a unique experience I have. I received death threats, hate mail. I've obviously uh, dealt with anti-Muslim protests. So I'm unique in that because of my position, I'm exposed to anti-Muslim bigotry much more than your average Muslim would be exposed. Are those incidences uh, rising or is the amount of mail, the amount of uh, hate calls, are those numbers going down just anecdotally, I guess? So for me personally, I would say the peak of the hate I personally saw and experienced probably in 2017. Um, you know, that time period of 2015, 2016, Leading up to 2017, it seemed things were very much peaking in terms of anti-Muslim bigotry. And for me personally, things have calmed down since then. And if you actually look at the broader American Muslim community and you look at polling numbers, you actually see something similar, that after 9-11, um, anti-Muslim sentiment in the broader public spiked a bit, but it didn't shoot up very high. Right after 9-11, most Americans kind of kept their cool and an open mind. But then if you look at polling numbers about 10 years later, uh, 2010, 2011, you'll see almost a 60% a 
negative view of Islam in the American population. And so something happened in that 10-year period. Obviously, the the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the controversy over the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, the formation of anti-Muslim hate groups, all of that combined uh, to create an atmosphere where 10 years after 9-11, things were actually worse than they were for Muslims in America a month after 9-11. And then obviously in 2016, 2017, you had Donald Trump uh, in America, you had ISIS running wild. So all that contributed to a spike in anti-Muslim sentiment that was really worse in the years after 9-11 than it was right after 9-11. And so what are you seeing now in the wake of the uh, pullout from Afghanistan, the evacuations? Are you seeing a rise, a spike now? We have not yet recorded any spike in anti-Muslim hate crimes. It's probably too early to see that. We did notice a spike in anti-Muslim incidents after the uh, fighting that occurred Um, Back in April, between the Israeli government uh, and the Palestinian people, we did see a spike in anti-Muslim and anti-Arab incidents around that time. So I would not be surprised if there is a similar spike in incidents now. But what we're really seeing is an increase in anti-Muslim rhetoric um, in the public uh, domain. So we're once again seeing uh, the words like Sharia or Jihad being misused by both anti-Muslim extremists and Muslim extremists, we're seeing that in the media, in the halls of Congress. So right now, it's more of a, um, a verbal problem we're seeing. That is, in the way people are communicating. We're once again seeing kind of the rise in anti-Muslim language that we hadn't seen in a few years. But we have not so far noted any sort of increase in hate crimes that we could relate to what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I can tell that this is your uh, career choice. You work for an organization that fights for the rights of Muslims in America. And I say that because you you speak about these things. So I don't want to say matter of factly, but I can tell that, you know, obviously this is something that you have to deal with on on really a daily basis. And so my question is, How does it affect you personally when you really think about the kind of hate that you see, uh, whether it comes in the mail or the calls that you get? How does it affect you personally? Well, it can be personally draining in this way. You end up spending um, sometimes more time reading and listening to anti-Muslim bigots than you do listening to Muslims, members of your own community. And so it's I would analogize it to um, if you go onto a battlefield, right? Um, You might survive the battle, but you walk away with some scars. Uh, You walk away maybe not moving as easily as you did before. And so, you know, to spend years, you know, dealing with anti-Muslim bigots uh, in the court of public opinion, in the court of law, it is draining. Uh, But for me personally, it's also motivating. I I was a prosecutor before I was a civil rights attorney. And for me, there is no bigger motivation than seeing something wrong and feeling a desire to change it. So as draining as it can be uh, to deal with this on a daily basis, um, it also gives me the energy to keep going, that you see injustice and uh, you have an opportunity to do something about it. You're an American, but does it does it color your view of this country? You know, as as an African-American, you know, sometimes one can struggle with the, the history of this country uh, and some of the contradictions that exist. How do you process some of the things that that you see and hear, the history of this country, as an American who cares deeply about this country? Well, as an African-American, as a Muslim, I I probably have a a somewhat unique perspective on America and American history. Um, You know, I love my country. I'm grateful that I'm, I'm here in this country. At the same time, I do not worship my country. I recognize that our government, like so many other governments around the world has a, a history of doing some great things and some horrific things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think I have the benefit because of my personal experiences and perspective of, you know, being able to, to look at my own country uh, with clear eyes um, and to realize that this country is far from perfect, uh, that there is more work to be done to improve this country, uh, and that this country, um, you know, has done some horrible things. Uh, but has also progressed and moved past some of those horrible things. And if we could get better in the past, we can, God willing, get better in the future. So America, for all of its its flaws and imperfections, I believe is a story of hope and a story of the the potential for progress that really does not exist in so many other places around the world. We have in this country the potential to peacefully 
improve things, to peacefully address problems, whether that's racism, anti-Muslim bigotry, economic inequality. We have a system that allows us, in theory, to change things for the better peacefully. That is a unique aspect of, of America, um, and I'm grateful to be in this country and, and to have the opportunity to try to change things uh, for the better. As we all look back on 9-11, personally, it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years. It seems uh, for me, uh, who was a journalist at the time, uh, well into my career, um, now it seems like yesterday, uh, as someone who lost friends that day, it seems like yesterday. What are some of the lessons that you uh, take from 9-11 from the years that have followed? Well, look, I think first and foremost is um, the ability of the American people and people in general um, to come together in times of crisis. Um, you know, even though obviously in the wake of 9-11, you saw hate crimes, you saw bigotry, you also saw people of all faiths coming together um, to support the victims, to support the families of the victims, um, and to try to, especially in the case of the Muslim community, to try to build bridges. I mean, I think you saw across the country uh, Muslim houses of worship, mosques, uh, and churches really step up interfaith dialogue. Um, and I think we've seen that happen again and again in times of crisis, is houses of worship, people of faith coming together to try to respond to something evil with something good. I think many Americans did that in the wake of 9-11. I think it's a lesson that we've learned and tried to replicate um, in, in response to numerous crises that have occurred since then. The second lesson, I think, you know, as someone who's a lawyer, who obviously thinks about policy issues, is, you know, how important it is for us to um, not respond to evil with evil um, and to make sure that in times of difficulty that we harness the best of our values and respond with the best of us, not the worst of us. There's a, a very famous um, ancient Muslim uh, leader who uh, fought the, the Italians when they in, invaded his country. And at one point he captured some Italian soldiers and he uh, fed them and clothed them and then freed them. And as people said, why did you do that? When the Italians capture us, capture our people, they torture us and kill us. Why don't you do the same thing? And the Muslim leader responded, the Italians are not our teachers. Uh, meaning that uh, if if we are attacked by people who are evil, we don't then respond to their evil with evil. We don't replicate what, what they've done. We respond with good and we respond in a just way. And so I think our country you know, made a lot of mistakes after 9-11. Uh, I think many of those mistakes are well known uh, to the public now from the Iraq war to torture and, and other such things. And so I think we as a country have learned a lesson that you know, we have got to harness the best of our values when we are under attack. That's, that's the time when our values are tested. Will we hold on to them when things are difficult? Uh, and I think many of us did after 9-11, many of us didn't. Uh, but I hope that our country has, has learned that lesson now, 20 years later. Edward, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Finally this week, I sat down for an exclusive interview with FBI Deputy Director Paul Abate. I started off the interview by asking Abate about the current threat landscape. Times have changed. Things have evolved. Much more complex threat environment that we're facing today. Our number one priority from the FBI standpoint is countering terrorism. That's first and foremost, because that goes to protecting people's lives uh, and keeping them free from harm. And then everything falls in line after that. Counterintelligence, cyber, of course. We've seen an abundance of cyber, particularly ransomware attacks in the recent past that can threaten life, health, and safety. So we're very cognizant of that as well. But anything that causes harm to people, threaten, threatens individuals' lives, that's first and foremost to us, starting with stopping terrorism, preventing acts of terrorism, and then the many criminal violations uh, that touch on that as well. You know, as Americans see U.S. troops withdrawing from Afghanistan, they likely see a different picture there than what you see. As a trained investigator, as the deputy director of the FBI, what do you see when the Taliban takes over Afghanistan and U.S. troops leave? I wouldn't isolate Jeff to 
any one country or part of the world. We're, we're concerned. We know that there are terrorists and terrorist organizations plotting and planning to attack us here at home in the United States and hurt people. And we work every day to stop that. So when we look at Afghanistan in particular, what do we need to do to ensure that that doesn't become, as it was before 9-11, a safe haven for individuals that are motivated to, to do those types of things and stop them there before they hurt anyone anywhere, in particular here in the United States? Does the FBI have the resources to focus on both domestic terrorism as well as internationally linked terrorism? We can always use more resources. We can always do more with more. But I think we do. We've been very effective uh, in stopping acts of terror and bringing to justice those that seek to commit acts like that. Uh, we're going to continue to do that. Finally, I asked him about September 18th. A right-wing rally is planned for that day, and Capitol Police are bracing for the potential for violence. There's a lot of focus on September 18th, uh, this upcoming date. Should there be concern that there could be some sort of uh, violence associated with that date here in, the, here in the U.S., and specifically here in Washington? We are very well prepared for that date or any other date. Uh, looking ahead, uh, we're postured with our partners for September 18th, uh, now and even beyond that, to ensure that violence doesn't occur. And that is it for this week's America Change Forever podcast. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.